So would you be able to give us a little bit of background about who you are and, and what inspired you to get involved in politics? Or perhaps you have a, a long history in politics we don't know about. <laughs> yeah, look, of course, of course. So, look, I'm a long-term Canberra and I've been here since 1976 and grew up in Chifley. Mount Taylor was my backyard backyard and that was sort of my first exposure of of nature in the Australian bush and extended from there but personally I'm a human ecologist by training and uh, if people aren't are unclear what that means it's effectively taking a look at the human species through an ecological lens like you would say the ecology of a bird species or an ecosystem and taking those principles of food, habitat, resilience of the environment, needs of the environment. And frankly, I've been doing that since 1988. So it's getting on to 32, 33 years. And I've stayed true to the cause. I'm actually lucky. I'm one of the environmentalists that stayed true to the cause and has made a living out of it, you know, uh, by maintaining that integrity and evolving as the debate has evolved in our society. Mm. Um, I love Canberra. I love the freedoms and the nourishment that the Canberra institutions provide for us all. Um, and I have a very deep interest in the social transformation of our society. So really, I mean, as a surmise, the last 30 years have been a mixture of activism and extension of activism is politics, because that is exactly where the legal, institutional and financial power of a society is concentrated. If we take a look at the ACT government, they have a $6 billion budget that they spend every year. And the absurdity of it is they've got legislative power to decide what colour shoelaces we wear on Tuesdays and what colour T-shirts on Thursdays if they want to, as they've expressed themselves through the COVID response. So really the nature of our Canberra society and Australian society is to concentrate social leadership power within these political institutions and if you ignore them you're sitting outside as an activist really terribly desperately knocking on the doors and often getting nowhere i mean it's certainly changed since the time of the hawk era and the keating era when uh, you could demonstrate and the government would respond the government would uh, take measures to try and um, really re represent the community's interests these days, it's an adversarial role between progressive social justice, environmental justice movements, and a government uh, basically trying to shut us down. Mm. And this is where we get back to a lot of what of our minor parties, what minor party candidates have been saying is that um, the individual in the community is getting left out of the decision-making process in modern politics. You know, there's a, a real sense of. Um, uh, as you said, maybe a bit of entitlement coming from the more powerful parties about we're going to do what we want to do, we're not too worried what the people think um, as long as they keep electing us and getting us in. So um, we actually had a gentleman on the show about a month ago called Dr Peter Tate who is from the Canberra Alliance of Particip Participatory Democracy and his goal was to try and get candidates to fill out a CAPAD statement uh, which was a, a statement about who they are and what their values are. Is that something you've come across at all? Have you had a chance to look at that? So the, there's a large range and it's actually increasing. There's one out from the ANU. ANU. There is one out from, excuse me. <coughs> there's one out from the ANU. There's a number of organisations that are trying to do that. We are finding, and, and my perspective on this stuff is certainly we need to participate as minor parties in order to get our name out and uh, have some transparency 
Um, my issues really with those sort of schemes is that they're very simplistic in nature. Mm. And politics and, a, and an economic and a social change agenda is very complex. Mm. So how you may feel about overseas migrants mm. coming to mm. Canberra or what you feel about the, the different minority group mm. communities and their interests... Mm. Uh, sort of an expression of extreme views, you know, not the mainstay, which is at the real problem in the heart of an issue. So certainly in response, Zena, I mean, I think that the need for the minor parties and all candidates to be a lot more transparent in how they view politics and the needs for social change is really, really needed. I mean, what impression do you get from a face on a core flute? And that's the level of communication often by the major parties. The challenge, of course, is to translate that into government and politics. So, as you know, when candidates get elected, while they may have personal views, they're whipped by the party whip into conformity to the party's policy. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to see that evolve in terms of uh, the party position and where the parties are leading government as opposed to individuals, you know, which are then limited when they get elected. Mm -hmm. So I think in response... The more transparency, the better. Greater scrutiny and transparency mm. of the, what the pol parties are about mm. is fundamental. Mm. And also what we've noticed during um, this series of interviews of minor parties is that, you know, the feedback that they're getting from the public is the public is not too happy with the status quo and they're really looking at minor parties and independence, this election. I think there's been more interest in minor parties and election this particular time than any other you know the, the COVID's really um, had a huge impact on people and how they view how they're living in their community and how their community is being impacted so you know our, our understanding from what we've seen and what we've heard um, is there's definitely a lot of um, support for minor parties and independents at this time is that something you've been getting feedback on as well like when you've been talking to the public about your platforms and, and interacting with potential mm. voters um, mm. is this what you're hearing as well mm. Mm. Look, the community is in a very, very difficult space, okay? Let's get really real about it. We've been following an agenda of economic growth and some sort of equity, and we've ended up in a serious rut. We've got 25,000 people unemployed in the ACT. We've got probably another 25,000 underemployed. All of the pathways of the community participation is all the norms that we've been following for decades, which is get a job, work your butt off 10, 12 hours a day, come home, uh, your partner does the same. In the midst of that, you're trying to raise your children, you're trying to create a habitat that you enjoy. And those avenues are getting narrower and narrower and narrower, and many people are simply unable to participate and achieve their life hopes and ambitions. That's a reality. People are starting to realise that the sort of social development model that the politicians and the narratives have been pushing doesn't work. It's great green packaging, it's great PR, it, it creates sound bites and perpetuated by the media. The reality is very, very different. I'm really concerned that over the next year, 12 months, we're going to have a few thousand Canberra households lose their houses, lose their mortgages. We're going to have a hell of a lot of young people graduating from university and seeking to get up in life that the society and a Canberra society won't allow that to happen. There won't be the jobs there. And if there are the jobs there, they're the gig economy jobs. Mm. $5 an hour, $6 an hour, $7 an hour. Well, Where's the future yeah, for that? Undercutting, yeah, to so, do that. Look, there's, I, I can talk about a huge <laughs> spectrum of uh, 
problems within our everyday Canberran lives, you know, and maybe we'll get through some of that today. Now, we're absolutely going to touch on some of that. So just to give people a little bit of background about your party, for those that are, you know, meeting you for the first time through the radio show and maybe they have not heard about your party. So it's a fairly recently formed party. I understand uh, that you formed in June of this year and it was 182 Australian citizens joining together to contest the October 17th Legislative Assembly elections. Look, spot on. So the Australian Climate Change Justice Party uh, was really formed by the need of a group of people that perceived the current institutions and parties can't take Canberra forward, or for that matter, Australia. We had some real problems with the paradigms they were advocating. We totally disagreed with the way they were spending the budget, the legislation that was coming forward. And we actually saw that the Australian Greens were failing on their agenda as well. Uh, from our perspective, and we wanted to share a very different version of sustainability that's a lot more inclusive and a lot more progressive that's going on. So um, the party took a view, probably I'll explain the steps, and they're interesting steps, and maybe interesting for the for viewers, because we were very different to major parties. You'll all recognise all the major parties are very reactive. Oh, the community wants this, how are we going to do this? Um, they're very reactive, and if you know anything about politics, mm. half the policies are made up on the walkway up to the media press conference mm. without much thought and then implemented. Mm. So we wanted to face the agenda of climate change, of social justice, of economic resilience in the ACT. And the way we did that is we, look at, we took a vision of Canberra in 30, 40 years' time as a climate-adapted city. What did we need to be climate adapted in the ACT? And that includes elements of renewable energy, but it includes much more than that in terms of security of our food, economic resilience in terms of jobs and income for our community, proper housing for our new generation, a whole whack of social infrastructure. So what we did is we took that vision of a future Canberra and then have brought it back to current reality which is here in 2020, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of a recession, in the midst of co the community's challenge of the dominant political paradigm, how do we take this energy and take the right steps in terms of our social investment, term by term by term by term, and we've now presented that in some detail in our policy platform. Mm. Mm. So I'm, I'm just going to have to interrupt the flow here for just a little bit because I, I met this bloke down the markets a couple of months ago um, and he was talking about all of this sort of stuff. He sounded a lot like, oh, hang on, hey, he was you. <laughs> yeah, right. But he convinced me to, to join this party that was a fledgling party so that they could get over the line with the amount of members they had. So I said, oh, yeah, I can do that, but, you know, I probably won't stay a member if you get in. So I have uh, I have been a member of the Climate Justice Party, but I am no longer. And, um, and as... With my co-Canberra hat on, we've had a yarn, as, as co-Canberra's had a yarn with some of the other political parties as well about policy and how you might do things. And uh, as a director of pre-power, I've noticed that pre-power has actually been mentioned in the in the platform and, and just, uh, just to say that pre-power doesn't support any political party, but uh, we're happy to be mentioned by anybody. Um, yeah. Right, so with, so, with so that out of the way... <laughs> well, I just wanted to say That was thanks. the caveat, Scotty. <laughs> yeah. and, and that was really clear. I mean, that's where you are. You need to have 100 registered ACT, registered voters to form a party in the ACT. And we genuinely went back out of the community and said, look, this is what we'd like to do. Will you support us? And lo and behold, we have members for the full spectrum of Canberra that have joined us. We've got 
we're actually the only party that allows 13-year-olds plus to join a political party <laughs> in the ACT. Um, so we have a full spectrum from really quite old, elderly, thoughtful thinkers to uh, ANU uh, professors to kids that are really struggling out on the streets to older people, elderly people, mums and dads. So it was a genuine, it's a genuine program, oh, sorry, it's a genuine party of, of a widespread of Canberra. Mm. So thanks, Scotty. Yeah. No, that's all right. And sorry to see, see you leave. Oh, you know, that's all right. This yeah, man right. wears a lot of hats. Yeah, I don't, know how he, I don't know how he gets them all on his head. He's got a big brain, but he's got a lot of hats there. Oh, I don't know. It's all hat, I think. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so you've, um, you, you've, you've decided to run for, for government, essentially, as, as part of this mm-hmm. party. Why did you decide to go as a party rather than an independent? And, and then what do you think that government can do? That you can't do within the community. Oh, look, there's a. I mean, I'll, I'll be trying to be clear and crisp on it. You know, these are big agendas. The party is a reflective of, of a wide aspiration of Canberra, and as a political party, you need the critical mass of talent, uh, different skills, and the uh, physical energy of actually running a campaign. So, we've yesterday announced eleven candidates in the ACT elections in three electorates. So we're the fourth largest uh, political team going into this election at this stage. Uh, personally, why I've gone back into politics, well, it's not really the case. In 1993, I was one of the key people that brought the Greens from Tasmania to the mainland and stood for the federal seat of um, Macquarie, which is the Blue Mountains, and saw the power of politics at that stage. Um, we swung the seat on behalf of the Greens and then got involved in World Heritage Listing for the Blue Mountains. Then, I guess over the years, with family, etc., I focused on different areas in terms of international standards setting for sustainability, etc. But in this instance, I saw an opportunity where the ACT government is in a balance of power. The Greens have got a balance of power. They should be achieving a hell of a lot more on sustainability. In our view, they haven't. It's time to call them to account, but more importantly, it's time to share a very different version of sustainability for Canberra. And the best way to do that is to spearhead straight into politics. So we've brought together a team. We think we're starting to share the sustainability agenda. We're getting our voices heard. And fundamentally, we have a very different sustainability plan for Canberra than what's been advocated. So I think that's a surmise. Mm. Now, you mentioned that you've... You've gone with the the planning method, I guess, or I don't know what you'd call it, but the idea of forming a vision for what you see in the future and then sort of reverse engineering that. What was that vision that you came up with? Well, look, the vision wasn't uh, a picture of a city. It was more an understanding of the environmental flows and threats that are coming to a region that's our nation's capital with this sort of geography. So it was a mapping more of the environmental shocks the social shocks we can expect, the economic and political shocks as they originate this century, and then creating resilience against those. So if we look at the environmental shocks, you know, the obvious ones that everyone knows is heat, wild weather, lack of rain and water for this region. We see this can easily become a broken hill type of environment within 40 years' time. So there was those environmental characteristics. And linked to that is huge challenges to the ecosystem niches that are here, the birds, the wildlife, the eco- ecological um, 
um, bi- not the biomes, the geography of the region. Mm-hmm. So we expect a huge transition of those natural assets. And it's already started happening. You're talking about privatisation or...? No, no, no. I'm talking about the natural realities of, mm-hmm. of the earth here, Zena. So the natural realities that we expect that the species distribution that's out there at the moment will shift fundamentally over the next few decades. Mm-hmm. Then we took a look at the likely economic and social shocks due to climate change. We see increasing prices. And Canberra buys everything from the rest of the world. It makes nothing here. So how's our community going to cope with petrol at $2.50, $3.50, $6 a litre? How is our community going to cope? It's already starting to cope with ginger at $50 a kilo and garlic at $40 a kilo, let alone our furniture, let alone all the other nutrition that we need. So that's a key economic shock that's coming into Canberra and you see it year on year on year on year and we just say prices are rising, prices are rising. But why are they rising and what sort of acceleration are we expecting? Then we have community and political shocks. Our government's responded to COVID with a massive amounts of money. They virtually said, here's, here's a cheque, go and spend it. But where's all the infrastructure to deal with really physical shocks to our community? The bushfires have been a perfect example. We've been living with bushfires for a century in Australia. Our capacity to deal with them is hopeless, absolutely hopeless. And families are in terror down the coast. So what I'm trying to point uh, uh, present here, I think, Scotty, and Zena and your listeners, of course, is when we looked at a vision of the future, we looked at the physical, economic and social shocks that are coming to our city. And then we said, well, how do we abate that? So environmentally, there's solutions. Socially, there's solutions with sustainable industries and resilient closed-loop economies. On a community perspective, there's solutions in terms of making sure we don't work for multinationals that take our financials away. We bring it back down to community cooperatives, social enterprises, local business and local capacity. These solutions create resilience on that pathway this century. And we want to see the government funding and investment being directed to this direction rather than pretending everything's okay and keeping with the status quo. Because that's the biggest risk. We keep on going as we are and artificially resuscitating the current social development journey and then we have major shocks that come in and we're totally wiped out. And on your policies, um, you also mentioned that a main goal is to try and keep um, a lot of the outsourcing local. Like instead of having it outsourced, having monies go elsewhere to do development, having them go interstate overseas, you'd like to see more of that stay local. Look, the, the, the economic modelling is really very simple for the ACT. We uh, collect the taxes of Australians from around the country. We put them in a backpack and bring them to Canberra. And then we uh, invest 13 to $15 billion in Commonwealth wages just in the ACT. So we have that investment. Unfortunately, that money jiggles around here for two, three weeks until Coles, Woolies, Bunnings, 7-Eleven... Uber and everyone else takes it away three weeks later. Mm -hmm. And that cycle is an unsustainable cycle. Mm -hmm. If the Commonwealth loses its tax base, if the Commonwealth Mm -hmm. decides to move out to other regions Mm -hmm. because the climate here and the infrastructure here is not suitable, like they have been talking about regionalisation, there's a dead heart in Mm -hmm. Canberra, which is we don't have that economic and social resilience to deal with that shock. So our business is politics, and without politics there isn't much else to sustain us. Is that what you're... Proposing potentially. Well, look. Let's take a look at reality. Yeah. Everyone, look at look at everything around in your room. Was it made in the ACT? Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. 
And unless we start providing for ourselves, we won't be able to do that. So some of our policies, look, our biggest package is to redirect jobs and the type of enterprises that are in the ACT. There's three core elements to that. There is uh, making the ACT a renewable energy capital of Australia by making every household uh, own their own renewable energy so we don't pay the three to 4000 a year in energy bills, having their own battery, having their own electric vehicle charger, and if they can't put it on their apartment, then they have an equity position in a community-owned facility on the outskirts of Canberra so that they do have participation in that energy source. So energy is really important. Our water is taken care of by Icon Water and we want to maintain that as a public utility. For food, we'd like to see massive agricultural opportunities in the surrounding region. And when I mean the surrounding region, I mean a 200-kilometre radius around the ACT. You talk about creating a food bowl, I think, on, on some of your um, information that I was reading. So I'd love to hear more about that. Well, look, fundamentally, yeah, yeah. it's exactly that. It's, it's security over our food supply. And with that comes wonderful jobs for our future mm. generations. With that comes the ability to control our ecological impact as well. So right now we have farmers on the outskirts of the ACT that are making produce that can't get their produce into the ACT in the market because it's dominated by the major retailers and they don't want to have a bar. So there's uh, production challenges, but there's distribution challenges and retail sale challenges. Now, there are some enterprises that are starting, but they're really small in nature. And I'm not interested in Band-Aid solutions to these problems. If we've got a broken leg, you put a cast on it. If we don't have food supply, well, then let's build the scale so that 60 70% of our food supply is with enterprises that we control as a community. So that's a principle. So the second one is food. The third well, just on that, before you go on... Um I'm interested in you looking at a future where where fossil fuels are going to be a lot less available and, and very much more expensive. So how the food system at the moment is, is really heavily reliant on a lot of fossil fuels. They've sort of, over time, they've, they've replaced the human energy with fossil fuel energy. Um, so how, how do you see a food bowl working when, as you say, when diesel is $6 a, a litre? So the, this is the nature of the challenges we have. And, I mean, I can point to a few solutions, which is, like I say, vertical gardens and electrification of our greenhouses because we have a cold winter here. We have electrification in terms of some of the robots and, and uh, technologies and go and help harvest and pick. So I'm not looking at going back to an agrarian Middle Ages type of environment. I'm looking at the evolution of modern agriculture within a renewable setting. And that means getting rid of fertilisers and fossil fuel fertilisers and finding alternatives around that. And in many ways, Scotty, we're not here as an advocate of every solution under the sun. We're here as an advocate of seeing these are the shocks that we're facing. We see really realistic investments that can be made on the 18th of October after we get a seat. <laughs> And uh, then we're going to the challenges. So what are the right crops in the ACT? Let's do a mud map of soil quality in the ACT. Where should these facilities be, be invested in? Our water supply. How do we deal with the biodiversity corridors that may impact certain regions? How do we enhance those as part of the agricultural solution? How do we get our workers living on site close to the 
facility. So then it becomes, um, you know, a very nice lifestyle for that generation. So these are the real challenges as we go forward. Well, and there's solutions, really practical solutions abound. Um, that's the nature, I think, the way I'd like to respond to it, Scotty. I mean, I can give you a list of 100 things we can do, bud, but uh, <laughs> we want to speak. And it's always growing, you know, as you figure out what you need, you've got to come up with new solutions, right? So it's as you go, it's grow as you go. It's, yeah. that's, that's life, yeah. you know, that's entrepreneurism, that's yeah. change, you know, you just lead in that direction and you decide, well, look, you know, the water is too salty here, let's not uh, plant here, you know. What do we want to grow? Garlic is very strong in this region and now we ex we're buying our garlic from China. What a tragedy. And it's very poor nutrition and the rest of it, you know. So there's a thousand things to be done. There's a thousand, tens of thousands of things to be done to get a food bowl up. But we need to engage with it because if we don't, 20 years later, tomatoes will be $15 a kilo and then they won't be on well, the shelves. Or you have a food desert, right? You won't have anything growing that you can access easily. You'll end up with the, the staple crops, mm. lots of carbohydrates, mm. lots of hydroponically grown food with low nutrients like the salt, seven core nutrients. You'll have a lack of supply. You know, you may have a flood of apples mm. but no pears or oranges. Your grapes will be gone. You'll end up with a very small skeleton mm -hmm. food food on your shelf mm -hmm. that you, everyone can And probably afford. a food monopoly, right? You're going to have some big agro-businesses controlling most of that, I imagine. Well, we're already there. Yeah. But, you know, we, now you've still got choice, right? We've, we've still got um, the ability to go to a farmer's market, the ability to support, support small growers. Whereas I know I, I lived in North America for 25 years. There's a lot of struggle to get access to things that are outside of big agribusiness. You know, there's a lot of um, debate, for instance, like you've got four varieties of potatoes now when there used to be 200. Spot on. Um, you know, three varieties of corn when there used to be 200 varieties of corn. So all of that, you know, that, that it's just that compression of choice to the point where there's, if you want to eat, you want to live, there's going to be very little you can do about it. Look, spot on. Mm -hmm. and that principle is really important mm -hmm. when we start talking about sustainability mm -hmm. and resilience. It's like all things. When mm -hmm. you have 40 varieties of different enterprises or potatoes, mm -hmm. let's take potatoes as, as an example, mm -hmm. some will be more resilient under tight water restrictions, under climate change scenarios, under limitations of fossil mm -hmm. fuels so you can't tender them as much. So three of those 40s are going to be mm. the saviours. Now, if mm. you kill those three of those 40 varieties mm. early on, mm. they're not going to be available when you really need them. Mm. And that's the case for our enterprises. That's the case for our multicultural mm. community and the cultures they bring to the ACT. If we all follow one particular culture and are ingrained in that way, well, what do we do when we need adaptive social strategies mm. that, uh, that will solve, solve our challenges? Mm. We won't have them. Yeah, and I think like the motivation for reducing um, the number of crops grown was that simply you know the the demand was coming from big corporations like Lay's Potato Chips, and they wanted only potatoes that would make good potato chips that could be mass produced. So all the growers, if they wanted to stay in the market, had to start growing that variety of potatoes in order to be financially sustainable. Otherwise, they were just going to get pushed out. So you've got that that sort of situation as well, where the demand is coming from large corporations, not from the people living in the community who want to eat a healthy diet. And I think you, you point to that same example mm -hmm. in terms of how governments stifle that diversity. Mm -hmm. 
So governments will come along and say, well, you need a coffee shop with these characteristics mm. and these foods and these limitations mm. and this is how you're allowed to cook it on site or you're not. And then they stifle that diversity of community. Mm. You want to set up a food stall or a coffee van? Mm. Well, it needs to have these regulations and we need to permit you and licence you under these rules and these costs for you to participate in the community. You want to build a house? Well, it's a building codes and three inspectors and you must have bricks and veneer and and you must have uh, these concrete dimensions rather than straw bale or mud brick mm -hmm. or, or timber or the alternatives that we need to be exploring at this stage. Which is very relevant to what you're talking about, the bushfires. Like Scotty and I have talked about the need architecturally to build completely differently if communities are going to survive extreme summers. You know, we, we can't keep rebuilding what was just burnt on the coast last year because th there's no way for those communities to be sustainable at that level. So it's a yeah, rapid... But they want, yeah, but they want to stay there. They want to stay where they know is home. They don't want to have to move into a big city. So, you know, it's like, how do you how do you get thinking? I think there was also some mention about tiny homes and, and having eco-villages you mentioned on your platform as well, like different ways of looking at building and the potential also, you said, for young people yeah. to own land yeah. so that there's... Um, young people right now are not looking at a bright future as far as getting into the real estate market. Yeah. And certainly rent isn't any more affordable yeah. than having a mortgage. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, I mean, the theme carries across. Mm. We want a diversification of how people create their lives mm. and how they live. And the ACT government is fundamentally involved. You know, mm. really, they are the arbiter of whether you can or whether you can't. And fundamental to our campaign is to advocate for very alternative pathways of our social evolution <laughs> here in Canberra. Now, you mentioned the two eco-villages. We've done some costings. We've taken a look at the role of the suburban land agency and the way they mismanage the public asset and privatise it. We already know the ACT government's purchase from leaseholders future land towards the Cotter for a pittance. I think it was about $8 million for 1,000 acres that they purchased that land back. Um, and they're looking at a further extension of suburbs as part of our land stock that way. But, but the type of suburbs you already see. Now, what we're saying right now is for those sort of assets, let's create solutions for our young generation. Let's explore the idea of putting eco-villages down there, which are different uh, building codes facilitating owner-builders, different types of planning in terms of streetscape and infrastructure, to really bring together a community committed to living well, in harmony with nature, and exploring the pathways to do that. And the beneficiaries are our young generation, which are desperately now paying high rents, in homeless, or trying to sit in public housing without ownership over their home. Our costings indicate we can get half-acre blocks there for $60,000. And the capacity to build through the Suburban Land Agency um, houses of 100 metres for 100,000 on top of that. So for 150, 160,000, you can have an individual or a couple or a small family owning their own home in an ecological estate. These are really practical solutions, really simple solutions for the ACT government to implement. And they are workable because they're already up and running in other places in the world. They've demonstrated the viability. 
Absolutely. of building this way and very successfully and particularly looking at the demographic where you know you've got people who are low income who are also working full time and still not able to keep a roof over their head so you know you've got some of these concepts where they've actually permitted um, having a tiny home was that right now I believe there's a lot of restriction about whether or not you can even put a tiny home as a secondary dwelling on a property there's got to be um, I think relations to the people that are living in the main house there has to be a family extended, extended family that sort of thing so you have to go to uh, an area of land that's been designated um, a caravan park site you know like a zone for what they call it R01 or something so you've got that restriction about where you can put a small footprint house and there's I think also restrictions on minimum size of build so it has to be bigger than what is it uh, 80 square meters or something if it's a single dwelling mm. which yeah changes look, look, the demographic how crazy how yeah. crazy that's right and so, so this is exactly how the governments have a huge responsibility to free up the community's opportunity to evolve and change. And the more they, we have a government and a mentality in government, including the public service and bureaucrats, mind you, because the bureaucrats are the, are the ones that feed this information up to the politicians, you must have an 80-square-metre building. Well, why the hell do you need an 80-metre-square building? You must uh, be related to the person to put on a tiny home. Why? These, these limitations change and in many cases ruin people's lives because they then either have to choose, I must get a job and be mortgaged for 40 years to create some wealth and security for my family or I'm on the sidelines angry at the world because I don't have an opportunity to express my life. So it's that serious. Yes. It's that serious in the ACT. Right here in the place that we live, and we've all sort of accommodated it. We've all tolerated. We thought we're going to do the right thing. But it's time that we as a community demand a government that facilitates our lives rather than restricts our lives. And the time's come. Climate change is here. Ecological catastrophe is well on its way. The social shocks in COVID, we've felt and been bewildered by how quickly our lives have been restricted. Um, now, we can do this not in an, in an, uh, an aggressive or, or a challenging manner. We do this through our democratic process. And our challenge as the Australian Climate Change Justice Party is to effectively communicate this message, you know, through the channels of the public media, but through other channels, really communicate a different version of sustainability that's possible, why these policies are there, how they can be implemented... Um, so that we can have genuine social cohesion of the trajectory we're after. Yeah. I mean, on the show, we talk a lot about things that need to be fixed, why they're broken and how we can fix them. And some of the guests we've had on more recently have touched on all of these points. You know, like we just talked about the fact that we've got a housing crisis even before COVID, even before the financial collapse, even before the bushfires. There was a housing crisis. There was a three-and-a-half-year waiting list for public housing. So what do you do if you can't afford to rent something or you are competing with a lot of other more attractive renters. You know, there's a, I think, less than 1% vacancy rate currently in Canberra for rental properties. Yeah. So if you're a, um, a young person with no rental history or maybe somebody that's um, had insecure, yeah. un insecure employment, you don't have a good financial history and you're going up against a couple that both are working for the same property, who's, who's going to get chosen? Like, so let, let me just take that point and delve into yeah. the detail because often people will be outraged and see this lack of, lack of logic. But let me give you an insight in terms of the value of a very strong, capable political party. 
You won't know that in the ACT we allow non-resident migrants, I'm sorry, non-resident uh, buyers to buy our apartment buildings and houses with no foreign resident tax. In, the, in Sydney and New South Wales, this came up five years ago and they said it's mm. 8%. You want to buy a property and you don't live in Australia? 8% up front. So foreign buyer's tax, basically. Correct. Yeah. We don't have one in the ACT. Why the hell not? Just so we can put up these apartments, sell them to foreign residents, mm. the government can take their rates, extra rates, mm. and our poor young generation have to end up paying $500, $600 rent to a foreign investor that may have come out of a, a corrupt Chinese um, district trying to launder some funds overseas. And this has been an issue in most of the major cities um, in the West where, you know, until recently there was no foreign buyers tax and it's because of the housing affordability crisis that the government's been forced to look at that. So I'm, I'm slowly seeing it being implemented in the larger cities. Like I lived in Vancouver for 25 years and it's I think it's Hong Kong, Sydney, Vancouver are the three most expensive cities in the world to live in. And pr pr predominantly, that's the issue is you've got um, foreign-owned property, often which is being left vacant. It's not even being rented at exorbitant rates. It's, it's a place to put your money. Um, and there's a lot so, of so flexibility for them there. So you've got a lot of property that's actually being scooped up that's not even available as accommodation. Look, there's some principles here. Yeah. There's some really mm -hmm. fundamental principles here. The first one that I want to re-emphasise again mm -hmm. is an active political mm -hmm. party can dissect these mm -hmm. practical limitations to our, mm -hmm. our housing stock mm -hmm. and advocate it for mm -hmm. it. No other political party in the ACT has done it, yet everyone talks about housing crisis. Mm -hmm. So it's that detail of policy and politics that makes a mm -hmm. difference. Um, the second thing is weighing up how a community purse should be spent. This whole advocate of a $2 billion tram mm. from Civic to Woden. With $2 billion, you can put solar on every residence in the ACT. You can put a battery of 15 kilowatt hours in every residence in the ACT, and you can put an electric vehicle charge plug in every residence in the ACT, and you can put in regional microgrids mm. to give some resilience on energy. So Canberra mm. and the media, we can put one tram from Woden to Civic, or we can give everyone free power in the ACT. Now, do you think it's a case of, you know, now because there's a lot more people who are really struggling, there's a lot more voices in dissent, right? Like before, I think there was a maybe a bit of a lackadaisical attitude to things. It sounds good, so we'll go with that. But now it's directly impacting people and their families to an extreme, extreme yeah. extent. Look, so the, why, why, why would you, um, why do you think that maybe there was a lot of support for the tram, but not for what you've just proposed? You know, is, is that because there's, those proposals aren't getting to where they need to be seen? Or Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, there's, there's a whole lot of masquerading going on in government um, about what they seek to advocate. Mm. So... There'll be a whole lot of reasons why they went down that track, um, but we're here to give an, a real perspective, mm -hmm. a considered perspective, mm -hmm. so the community can be informed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you talked now, about... Sorry, Zena. No, go, go ahead, before, yeah, go before ahead. Before you go, um, before we move on, I just really want to say, look, <laughs> things don't change until there's an old saying. There's actually an old Macedonian <laughs> saying I'll share with you. Until the knife hits the bone, it doesn't hurt enough. <laughs> 
So it really needs to go deep, and, mm. and we may need to, and mm. I hope not, mm. go down to greater poverty, mm. greater confusion, greater frustration mm. before there's social change. Mm. We're trying to facilitate as a political party mm. not to go into those desperate mm. times and to take proactive mm. steps. Yeah. Well, we're really hoping we don't get too much more desperate than... 2020. I think 2020 has been a rude wake-up call for a lot of people. Um, you know, and as you said, this is an approach that your party's taken, which is a different, different take on sustainability. You know, rather than what we traditionally know as being green and sustainable, this is your particular approach on it. It's something that maybe people aren't familiar with. So to, to harness some <laughs> principles, let me clarify what... What are those different approaches? I've I me mentioned that our response is based on the physics, the reality mm-hmm. of our geography mm-hmm. and our community, uh, the budget that we have. Mm-hmm. So it's based on the reality of, of sustainability. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that it's an all-inclusive vision, which means, as I advocated, rather than a tram that serves one group, mm-hmm. it's solar and renewable energy for everyone in the ACT. Mm-hmm. So the whole community makes this transition. So social justice is a key element of taking all of Canberra forward. So that's that's a difference. Um, the third difference is that we are quantum orders more serious and ahead of what's currently in the political arena. We see the implications of an ecological catastrophe taking shape. We do have buffers, but those ecological catastrophes happening in Papua New Guinea or India or China or all over the world in our supply chains um, will affect us. And secondly, we have a moral responsibility. What are we doing exporting ecocide to the rest of the world where we buy our products for? Sure, our lake and and our mountains may look good, but we are forcing ecocide all over the world from our behaviour. And we'd like to take both responsibility for it by growing some sustainable industries in the ACT and therefore having control and benefiting mm-hmm. from the jobs and the economic mm-hmm. closed loop that that creates. Mm-hmm. These are really obvious, mm-hmm. obvious and simple steps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we feel like we're on our own. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to talk about footpaths and uh, mm-hmm. when's that light going to come on in the corner? Yeah. I think they're getting past that now. I think it's, you know, there's a bit more of a personal impact to what people are going through where they're starting to, you know, think in a community-centric mind less, as, less selfish, I would hope. So one one of the things is we want to bring together the neighbourhood sustainability feel. We'd like to have um, the infrastructure within every street and every suburb so that the community that actually lives there can live there as a community. At the moment, it's these rectangular parcels. You drive up, put it in the driveway, you don't talk to your neighbours and then you, you exit. That is not a resilient community. It allows... And I'll explain to you how, why it's not. What it does, it allows those few shonky people in the street mm-hmm. or those people that have got emotional or, or you know, very bad attitudes mm-hmm. that may be profit-centric to either steal from the community mm-hmm. financially mm-hmm. Or, or, and not be recognised as being the thief mm-hmm. or degrade our social well-being through uh, abuse of, mm-hmm. of neighbours mm-hmm. or other individuals mm-hmm. and not be identified as such. Mm-hmm. Now, the way a community governs itself is that the attitudes of the individuals are transparent. The capabilities of the individuals are transparent. So the community can evolve itself, reward those guys that are just, that try and do the right thing, recognise them, invite them to the barbecue, invite them to have an opinion 
And those that are the thieves, scandals, uh, are the most destructive human qualities, those ones that act that way, they're recognised for what they are and they can grow as people and think to contribute back to the community rather than some of the attitudes they may have been taught. So it's that community governance. To add to that, I mean, the implementation of that in Canberra uh, we're spearheading. So what we want to do is we actually want to give a lot of the community services to the community councils. We've made an allocation of 12 to 15 million for every town centre council in the ACT. So that, that money they can invest in their community where they know their community needs it, rather than big brother government coming on and saying, well, you know what, you need a new park, concrete park here and we're going to spend $2 million on it. Where really what they needed was all the footpaths fixed in the whole suburb. Mm -hmm. So that part, the other th part we're looking at is a cooperative community housing model, mm -hmm. whereby um, all the public housing stock is actually transferred to a cooperative non-for-profit entity, mm -hmm. whereby uh, the community can take care of the public housing mm -hmm. needs rather than government and four layers of middlemen deciding what the community may need and when to fix it and what the priorities are. What we see there is it's a very well-established model. We'd establish community cooperatives, housing cooperatives in every suburb or town centre, and they would have a residential stock where they take care of it to maintain the quality of it and all the social and community services to those individuals. And when they find individuals are neglecting the tenancy or they're uh, ruining the property or don't have the right attitude, then those measures can be taken forward directly rather than working through a bureaucracy. It'll be of much greater benefit to the community, much greater benefit to residents mm -hmm. and grow our housing stock for those that need mm -hmm. a transition point between not having a house and finally owning their own house. Yeah. I can certainly advocate for that. Um, in Vancouver, cooperatives living is um, been used long term and is very successful and the cooperatives are managed by the people within the community within those developments. Uh, unfortunately, some of those co-ops have been um, bought back by the government and are being turned into private, you know, expensive real estate, uh, which is displacing all of the people that used to live in them. But the model itself has worked extremely well. It's made it possible for vulnerable people, for people on low income, uh, for single parents, you know, people who would struggle to have a safe, um, comfortable home to live in, to not only have that home, but to be part of a community that's very supportive. To have, to have friendships, to have yeah. uh, safety for their kids to play, to have yeah. a nice environment. And you'll find most of the people in these communities are very um, engaged and wanting to create a pleasant environment to live in. So you see some of the most beautiful gardens around co-ops. You see, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, like combined recycling efforts. Like some, some really great ideas have come out of them. Yeah. Mm. Sun Villages out in yeah. Queanbeyan's building that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... I've seen a theme emerge here. Um, you've been talking about the government procurement policies, looking at sort of moving away from multinationals. We're looking at uh, restricting the investment from national or national international capitalists in the real estate market, and we're looking at neighbourhoods with more control. So we're really getting down to an issue of sovereignty here, of who gets to control the economics and, and through that the the real power behind what happens in, in a place. Um, yeah, so do you want to just go through a little on, on how you think a, a community could actually be sovereign and actually hold its own, its own decision-making power in a real sense? Mm. 
So, look, small is beautiful as uh, Schumacher led us uh, down that path and uh, there's a lot of social ecology, um, understanding of how communities are knit. Look, the simplicity of a capitalist privatisation model is over, frankly, um, and we are now at the emergence of a community-led uh, change for, I hope, sustainability, but certainly greater community power and control over their lives. The, the fundamentals of life in Canberra are that we do need to enhance our community's sovereignty and our own community's governance. To do that, what we're advocating is some of the social services that the ACT government currently does, like maintenance of the lawns, like checking the lighting, like graffiti, like some health services for our elderly and people in need, like some of our training and education services, they're all brought back into the community as community social enterprises. We don't need the government coming along and structuring all of those solutions and saying, this is what you must have. We'd like to see the cycle of community funded funding benefit the community. So give the money and the infrastructure and the enterprise capacity back to the community councils, the community associations, new social enterprises, new cooperative enterprises, so the government can basically invest that money back into those community entities, rather than bringing in an international national consultancy to do the feasibility, set it up at a professional standard as they define professional and then charge Canberra an arm and a leg for it. Those efficiencies are really important for sustainability, Scott, because we need all the resources, the financial and legal and community resources to make this transition. And every dollar we send outside of the ACT means we have less money to fund this transition. And you're spot on. We, we're enhancing the sovereignty of our economy and our community, so we've got the capacity to change. If we don't have that capacity, we'll end up in a scenario of, well, we don't have any money to do that. It's a great idea, but we don't have the money to do that. And how often have we been told that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's and always it's promised until after the election away, that you yeah. don't have the money yeah. anymore, right? So Suddenly, a week after the election, the money's not there. Yeah. So following on from that, I mean, if you look at it in a, a longer-term systemic way, um, when the English imperialists came to this country, they they basically pilfered it from the original inhabitants here and everything that we've built since is, is actually a, a proceed of crime, really. Um, so how do you see the Aboriginal sovereignty fitting in with the rest of the community's sovereignty? Because, you know, we're bloody well here now. It's going to be difficult to kick out all of the boat people. So, look, the, the, my, my view on, on this stuff, and we haven't gone too much to create a formal policy, so I'm just going to sort of say, look, you know, the limit of Aboriginal policy we have at the moment is we understand that there's three tribes that have got sovereignty and history in this space. It's an Unawalru group, it's also Paul Howes' group, the Nagambri people, and there's also, I believe, another group in transition. I think the first thing, thing is to recognise the complexity and value of all of those tribes. The second thing we'd like to see, like with our multi multicultural community, we need all of the cultural knowledge of our people in, the, in Canberra to forge our pathway towards evolution and sustainability. Now, there's deep recognition and value in understanding the cultural resources within our Aboriginal elders and the Aboriginal community in terms of their relationship with the land, how 
that used to meet the human needs and aspirations and how we can replicate that in a modern setting, you know? So do we really need to be working 12-hour days or do we need to work five hours and then spend the rest of the afternoon socialising and playing music and art and getting to know each other like my ancestors in Macedonia did? Mm-hmm. I talked to my uncle the other the, about two years ago when I was there and I said... It's a town of 70,000, 80,000 people. And I said, well, how many people, how many friends do you have here? And by that I meant, do you know their name? You know where school their kids go to? You know where they were born? You know what they do? You know where they live? You know something about them? And he said to me quite offhandedly, oh, about 800. <laughs> he didn't, even, he didn't even have to pause. So yeah. Important. Yeah. Blows the Dunbar number yeah. out of the water, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so there's those other elements of meeting our human needs and aspirations quite differently mm-hmm. than what Foxtel can give us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it was Brock Tully, um, who's a North American author, who um, wrote a book about saying that the the most productive a human could be in the sense of work time is about four hours of a day. So that if you just got to focus on work and nothing else, about four hours is quality what you can give yourself to work and then the rest needs to be spent on living yeah. on, on on doing things like you've just described on spending time in nature yeah. and reconnecting to your family your friends your community yeah. working on community projects yeah. that you know better the life of the community yeah. i mean all, all of those things are yeah. sounding al- al- altruistic but i think fundamentally that's when we look at where we started as human beings we started in community so, yeah. so, so that's a challenge for us. Even mm. So government has got a key part to play and this political party is mm. trying to find them the solutions because right now if you work four hours a day, you don't have enough money within our contemporary economy to survive and prosper. So how can our economy then provide for a family, a couple that wants to work four hours a day, yet still be able to get, a, get away on a holiday, still know that their fridge is full of food, still know that they've got e- economic security with their habitat. That's the challenge. Only, you know, people are only working 12-hour days because they need that to survive. So we need to restructure the economic and social flows to Canberra families to make a four-hour day the great opportunity it can be. And it's great possible, you know. It's, and you're right, Zena. Look, they, they, we are not totally adaptive people. While humans are very adaptive to the environment, there are some innate characteristics that we need as people. And if we get pushed too far, mm. we then being, become maladapted as individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, we become incapable of our hopes and aspirations mm-hmm. and our strengths. And many people are getting to that. You know, many people are now in such an uncomfortable environment without confidence mm-hmm. and security mm-hmm. of their future that they're extremely nervous, they're extremely frustrated, inside they're extremely unhappy. There's a recognition of men- mental illness, mm-hmm. but, you know, what are we going to do about it is, is, mm-hmm. is fundamental. Mm-hmm. So we'd like to see an economy and society that's a lot closer to nature mm-hmm. and a lot closer to what human nature is as well. Mm-hmm. And with that, great, creates great dividends. Mm-hmm. So people are no longer pursuing a million dollars. They're pursuing a hundred friends. Yeah. Well, I think that they said that the, the happiness cap, I believe it's, North American figures, but the happiness cap is a $75,000 a year gross income. Above and beyond that, if you make more than that, you don't actually get any happier. So that to to have everything that you need covered financially, all your material needs and <coughs> quality, some disposable income to take that holiday, $75,000 in North America is apparently 
sort of the level you need to get to and then after that whatever you make beyond that doesn't add to your personal well-being happiness look look i've felt that personally <laughs> so i i spent 15 years <laughs> of my life traveling the world dealing with in, international uh, business to redesign <laughs> their factories so widget x <laughs> makes a low ecological footprint i'm the founder of good environmental choice australia now i've given that to a non-for-profit organization <laughs> in sydney to operate um so with that came both enormous responsibility, but some family security and wealth. And I certainly found that having the option to get in a plane and go to Queensland just because you felt like it that weekend doesn't create the sort of inner happiness from simply staying at home and having time with your small kids. So, you know, this is what really happens in Canberra. There's a lot of wealthy people that are extremely unhappy as individuals. We know it, we recognise it, we see it, um, but where is our alternative model of a good, happy life in Canberra? Mm. And what's the role of government in doing that? I mean, government's going back to, oh, make more taxes, more enterprises, let's get more multinationals in here, let's bring in apartments here, let's dress everyone out. Come on. Well, I think... The role of government in history has been very much on the side of of where its origins come from. So you look back at Magna Carta sort of times and it's the nobles, just a very small group of courtiers who are fighting the king for rights for just themselves. And, you know, there is the Charter of the Forest and there's commons then, but ever since then... It's just been people fighting and fighting, tooth and nail, blood spilled all over the place to get to the point where we are now, where mm. just last century, late last century, women got the right to vote. Yeah. Um, then it took them 40 years to get it. in the Senate. Well, that's it. And there's so much that we can do incrementally like that, but we're still keeping that same mindset. So mm. if we're looking at government not, looking at the rich and the powerful and putting its focus on that as the 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 fountain of society i suppose or the the fountain of our wealth and looking at community as the fountain of our happiness and using that as a measure of wealth how could we go about doing that especially as a local government because local government's got a bit more wiggle room i think mm. on this one mm. 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 look uh, the Scotty, you raise a really important point. It was the role of government in community, the purpose of government to meet community hopes and aspirations. We've certainly walked away from there. Um, and unfortunately, the outcome has been that no one wants to know about politics. <laughs> Everyone hates politics. Everyone doesn't want to know who they are. They doesn't, don't trust them. And the politicians are quite happy with that, thank you very much, because the two to the Rattenbury Bar Alliance, these boys have had $6 billion in the last year and the power to legislate and the power to take the junkets and the power to direct how they want 21,000 public servants. The less interference they have in that power and, and, uh, and role, the better, as far as they're concerned. So... The issue you raise of grassroots governance or community governance is the, is the longest serving governance throughout all of human history. The tribe, the street, the village, the small suburb, you know, that sort of 100, 200, 600 people governing themselves and knowing what their needs are and putting their money together to achieve that. 
Look, a major thing for us has been to delegate a lot of government services down to the town councils to fund them to a high standard, well beyond, so they can... And it's a commencement of funding, Scotty, to allow them to have some infrastructure to commence this journey. It's no use giving them $100 million each. They won't know what to do with it, let alone the corruption and the pilfering that'll go on. You know, it's a measured step-by-step process of rebuilding this community capacity. Um, greater transparency is really important, like even what our kids learn at school and how much information the teachers... <laughs> are actually how competent and capable and how much training our teachers need to grow our schools. So the schools are a key hub of regaining community. Mm -hmm. Um, The health services are really important as well. We're looking at community-level cooperatives to extend to dentistry in the ACT as well as preventative measures and medicine. And mobile teams actually going out to people for preventative medicine, Mm -hmm. turning up the workplace, checking their blood pressure, Mm -hmm. checking their sugar levels, checking their blood so that uh, there's some preventative measures going on rather than building a new emergency ward after they're really sick and the, and the leg's fallen off. We want to know when the leg's about to start falling off. So these are important facilities. The multicultural community here is in a desperate flight not to anglicise. They would like to maintain their integrity and cultural heritage like the Aboriginal community would like to do that and like to have some sovereignty and capacity to be in community as that culture rather than, you know, chop their cultural leg off and pretend to be something that they're not. Um, So the growth of these things is where it's all about, I think, Scotty. You can't go from A to B instantly, but it's about facilitating the infrastructure, and we're really doing that. We want to maintain the community's ownership over its energy, renewable energy. We want to maintain the community's ownership over its food, over its housing, over its town centres, over its health facilities, great influence over its schools at a community level. And this is the infrastructure we need to go to for sustainability. By the way, there is no other. If we don't go down this path and we continue with the status quo, we will end up in a totalitarian mandate that's going to hit down really hard so that we can survive. Well, you can see where the disillusionment with politics winds up by looking at the states at the moment, can't you, with Mr Trump in there... But you can also see too, like we have a country where it is compulsory to vote. I lived in a country where it wasn't compulsory to vote for a long time and it was really unfortunate low voter turnout. So a lot of dissatisfaction with how things are, but not a lot of action taken to change things. So, you know, I I think you've definitely, you know, you talked about voter engagement, like this is where people are asking for transparency, they're asking to get to know their potential leaders so they can make informed decisions. I mean, this is something I see a lot of in Australia, and even though we're getting the sense that there's a bit of complacency going on, like you said, people don't really want to know about politics, they're not comfortable talking to politicians, Um, but you've got, on the other hand, countries where you don't have to do that, you don't have to get involved, you can step back and then just complain about the outcome. In this sense, you know, we are a little bit ahead of the game. You know, having a compulsory vote, and no matter where you stand on whether that's ethical or not, having a compulsory vote is really, really compelling people to be engaged in the decision-making process about their future. Mm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Scotty, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Look, <laughs> uh, one of the other questions I had was on population. So do you reckon that we've got too many people here? We're looking at... Uh, with global weirding, as Amory Lovins calls it, um, 
it, it's going to bring all sorts of droughts. Now, we didn't quite run out of water in the last drought. I think we did pretty well here, but... Um, Only because of the new dam that had gone in. Well, yeah, ago, we were right? actually quite sweet. We didn't even have water restrictions yeah. here. So I think for water, we're all right, but there'll be other mm-hmm. limitations. Um, what do you see if, if Canberra... Is it overpopulated? Will we need to reduce our population? The ecological reality is that we're well overpopulated right now. None of our population <laughs> is able to be sustainable in this region. That's that's very clear, and we're we're a really long way away from that. Um, as as I keep on emphasising, everything that we buy, everything that provides our human needs, is coming from elsewhere, not locally. Um, therefore, we, we're creating ecological footprints well outside of our region. So if I was going to ma- match population to ecological footprint, well, we are well away from sustainability in that front. Do we address that through population restrictions and um, limitations? We don't need to because Australia is a really, really prosperous and wide land. But the way we utilise Australia's resources is truly unsustainable with the machinations we've created. So what we want to do is reduce our ecological footprint by bringing in those resources here, like our food bowl, like our building materials, etc. Um, we do probably have, on a political front, an emphasis that is quite different probably from other political parties. Um, there's free flow migration and we've been talking to community housing officials and others and they're telling us, well, Canberra is a plethora of the social benefit subsidy. We've got people that finish off in the mines of WA and say, I'm heading to Canberra to get myself a cheap public house and all the other subsidies. People are leaving Sydney saying, well, Canberra's a bee's knees. If you don't have any assets, turn up there and they'll take care of you. <laughs> Um, the the challenge when I raise with you or clarify that our ecological footprint is very unsustainable is our focus is going to be on making Canberra sustainable first. Mm-hmm. We don't want to import more unsustainability. Mm-hmm. So one of the measures that we want to put in place is if you come to Canberra for three years, you don't get access to a public house, mm-hmm. which is quite different from the free door mm-hmm. tactics of the other parties. Mm-hmm. Why? It's not because we want to limit people's lives and well-being. It's because we have a serious problem in Canberra. Mm. Let's deal with our backyard first. Let's deal with our own issues first, invest properly in that, and then share that model to Australia and the world. Mm. Now, globally, population is a catastrophic uh, outcome and, and a catastrophe waiting to happen. The density in Indonesia, the density of population in India, the density of certain centres around the world means that those populations are now in extremely desperate places. And the way they manifest themselves are an inability to afford a living, very low standards of living, uh, high risk in terms of seasonal weather, in terms of their homes being destroyed, mass suicides in, in India farmers because their water flows have changed because of climate change and the hydrology of the glaciers there. Um, massive poverty in, in, in very important parts of the world. So Australia is resilient of that. We have a beautiful, wonderful, wide land with enormous amount of resources, which we don't take care of, but it still has capacity to sustain our population nationally, I think, Scotty. 
Yeah, yeah, I guess what you're saying just reminded me of saying by Wes Jackson. He says, uh, all life forms go after carbon-based energy. Um, and he, he explains it in the, in the, the analogy of, of petri dish economics. And uh, so if you put some bacteria in a petri dish full of sugar, It'll just start eating that and multiplying until it's all gone, at which point the population collapses. <laughs> it's all good until if, the 11th hour, isn't That's it? right. Well, if we can change that on a conscious level and actually turn it around, we may be the first species in history to do it, you know? Yeah. Look, there's a, there's a history. As I said, I'm a human ecologist. There's many villages and many regions in the world who have done that. Hmm. They have hit those limitations. They had those shocks and they've adapted, become resilient. And have done so all, throughout all of human history. You know, the challenge that we have with climate change is why it's a, one of the most important challenges. It's not a local problem. So it's not like Canberra's run out of water and we can all migrate and find a different place to live. It's a problem where you can't escape it. It'll affect every ecosystem, every corner of the world. And unfortunately, we're getting to the stage now where it's inevitable so we're of the view, if you want to have a view on climate change, is that massive climate change is locked in into the system now. It's no longer of let's put up renewable energy and we can abate it. We have a huge lock-in factor. We have ecological limits being breached like the tundra, like the Arctic, like the water cycles, like uh, our water water systems in terms of currents around the world, in terms of e ecosystem niches, they're all being um, effectively destroyed at the moment. And that destructive process will continue no matter what we do during our lifetimes. It's about scale of impact now. So we've taken a view Canberra's got a moral responsibility and a need eco economically to set up its own renewable energy, but its focus has to be on abatement because these changes are going to come, we can expect a broken hill-like environment no matter what happens within the next 30, 40 years here in Canberra. So we have to abate immediately now. So when we put our policy forward, as I mentioned, we look at a vision of where we're going to be in 30, 40, 50 years, what risks we have, and then now what are we going to do to immediately abate them? Now, we can't wait any longer. If we don't do anything this election, if we don't do anything in the next two terms for substantial change, then we won't be able to adapt enough in time. Even now, there's questions whether we can build the right housing stock, the food farms, the lessons of failures. You know, um, Scotty, we're going to end up putting in turnips and realise they're no good in Canberra for that particular species until we find the right variety. We're going to find that the plastic irrigation pipes that we put in to feed the the farm isn't the right thickness for these conditions and every time there's a frost all the connections snap these are learning journeys that need to take shape for Canberra our sustainable songline the songline of, of Canberra's sustainability future and uh, we are appealing to the Canberra electorate to realise these factors and give us a crack yeah. I mean if COVID did one good thing um, it made people sit up and pay attention where they maybe hadn't been before. Like we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who actually was doing research for Carbon Footprint and she said that she was thinking, okay, I need to go and interview some climate refugees. So she's thinking about where she can go and talk to some climate refugees overseas and some mm -hmm. Pacific nations. And then she realised there were climate refugees on our south coast. 
Yes, they are. You know, are. it was it. The whole issue was brought home very quickly. You know, we've been looking at it as someone else out there, over there for decades, mm. and and now it's right here in our backyard. Look, there's massive implications in yeah. Tasmania as well. I have some links there, and I see a lot of WA um, people leaving WA and ending up in Tasmania. I'll give you another example of, of that reality, um, a financial example. The banks go off and bundle all the mortgages that they give out for residences and they put them together in a bond and they sell it to the interna international wholesale banks or super funds saying, look, a 1,000 mortgages with an accumulated value of $100 million um, or $200 million and now it's a bond. And um, they rate them, you know, AAA rating, AA rating, A rating based on the fund fundability from the mortgage. Now, when you go back to Broken Hill, Albury, Wodonga, uh, Yass, um, you go out even, you know, um, down to Cooma, the viability of those mortgages is less and less and less as you hit these, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> as these, you hit these economic shocks. Which means the financial sector is now putting out credit instruments to the wholesale funding markets that are inappropriately rated, that won't be credit worthy, and it's a big secret. The Reserve Bank of Australia is trying to do some calculations in relation to the fundability of these instruments and the credit worthiness of those instruments, and they're perplexed by the algorithms that should be applying to these underlying securities. <laughs> so now we have the underlying economic system um, that is needing to respond to climate change, let alone at all levels. So international finance, global economics, supply chains, and now the people that you mentioned. People are moving. Yeah, and I think I liked one of the um, posters I saw up on your Facebook page, and it says, vote for the planet. Not vote for a politician or a party, but vote for the planet. Like, that's what we've got to keep in our mind right now. Well, the challenge for politicians <laughs> is, is to have the skill sets... <laughs> to do justice to that statement. You know, people say, of course I'm into renewable and of course I want to save the world. Do they have the skill, the insight, the ecological depth, the morality? The integrity. The integrity to do that? The knowledge to wield, wield, wield the levers and fortunes of government to achieve that? Our argument is that they don't and that's why we created the Australian Climate Change Justice Party. Mm. Well, really appreciate that. I, Scotty, do you have another question? I was just going to jump to one of our listener questions, if you want. Oh, you have okay, time for yeah, that. yeah. If I know we, we can. Oh, otherwise, uh, I was going to wind up. So. Yeah, I was going to yeah. real, real fast one here. I don't know if you know that the um, school strike for climate are up at Parliament House this morning, doing their thing up there and uh, up in the rain. Um, so they were just wanting to um, ask you because they had seen some uh, information on your website about um, Extinction Rebellion and yeah. School Strike for Climate. Um, how you might be able to work with them and things that you might have to collaborate with them? Look, I think Extinction mm -hmm. Rebellion are doing a really important mm -hmm. job in waking up the community mm -hmm. and sharing um, the vision for, for sustainability and climate mm -hmm. change. Extinction Rebellion mm -hmm. are a great organisation mm -hmm. to wake up mm -hmm. the globe to the severity mm -hmm. and significance. Mm -hmm. um, they are, however, an organisation that doesn't advocate mm -hmm. politics as part of their arena. Mm -hmm. 
they're apolitical. They would like to set up a citizens' assembly to guide our transition. The commitment that we can make is that a citizens' assembly can be created in Canberra and it can be given mandate and funding to achieve massive climate change transformation. To do that, we would... We would make an absolute commitment to do that. We see that as a fundamental pathway. So yes. our view is we'd open the door to Extinction Rebellion's demands mm -hmm. to achieve not only an assembly, mm -hmm. but one that is structured where its decisions are implemented by government and mm -hmm. funded by government. Mm -hmm. So that's the way we'd like to work with them and all power to Extinction Rebellion. Okay, well, thank you very much, Peter. As usual, when we get into these fabulous discussions, we've run out of time. <laughs> People always say, how can we talk for an hour and a half so that you just watch it fly by? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. um, did you have anything else you wanted to add, No, nah, that's it from me. Okay, terrific. Well, I wanted to say a huge thank you to Peter Johnson from the Australian Climate Change Justice Party for joining us this morning. Um, so, if you have any other questions that we didn't get to that you'd like to put to Peter, you can go to his uh, Facebook page or your website, and I believe you have a message inbox there. So, if people want to pop some questions in there they didn't get to today, is that something that would be okay? Look, absolutely. And, yeah. and I really sort of... Um, want to emphasise that yes while I am the convener I really see myself mm -hmm. as setting the table for leaders in the ACT on this topic mm -hmm. to come together and take it forward so mm -hmm. the invitation is out there come and join mm -hmm. Climate Change Justice it's free and it is a pathway for you to express your climate emergency views and solutions for Canberra Thank you very much, Peter. So next week, we're going to be hosting William Burke, who's president of the Sustainable Australia Party. So don't forget to tune in if you want to hear more about that. And if you'd like to hear more behind the lines, along with other great community content, you can support 2XX by becoming a sponsor or subscriber, volunteering with us or submitting your music. For more information, go to 2XXFM.org.au. You have been listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio, 98.3 FM in Canberra.